Well, in light of tonight's tag program, it only seems fitting that tonight we would talk about family discipleship, right? Family discipleship. So tonight, our sermon is going to be on family discipleship. And we're going to talk about two specific aspects of family discipleship, and it's this. Biblical instruction on family discipleship. And number two, and I think we all might need, need this, is how to stay motivated in family discipleship. And a crowd this size, I realize that many of you in this room aren't parents. Don't leave. Stay. Don't go. Stay here. Because I believe as we talk about family discipleship, many of the things that we discuss on how to disciple children, guess what? Applies to adults as well. The same way that we shepherd our children in many ways is the same way that we shepherd adults. But generally for everyone in this room, whether you're a parent, not a parent, the Great Commission speaks to all of us, that all of us should make disciples, going out proclaiming Christ and the saving work of the cross. So tonight again, we're going to talk about family discipleship. And our first verse that we're going to look at is out of Deuteronomy. So if you have your Bible with you tonight, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. And we're going to unpack some biblical instruction for family discipleship. As you're turning there, just a few uh, disclaimers. Number one is that there have been volumes and volumes of books written about family discipleship. We will not cover everything tonight. We will cover some of it, but not everything. But secondly, I want to just confess to all of you, I am not the perfect parent. I'm not. But even though I'm an imperfect parent, I do believe in the perfect, sufficient word of God. And if we study his word together, it will give us clear guidance and direction on how to become better parents and better disciplers. So again, tonight we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. I hope you found your way there. And we're going to read it together. And this is what the Bible says. Hear Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall repeat them diligently, diligently to your sons, and speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk on the road, when you lie down, when you get up. When You shall also tie them as a sign to your hand. You shall... And they, shall also, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall also write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. As we consider this verse and think through this verse, the main point I want us to see tonight is this. One of our main points is this. is family discipleship is to be a daily task performed by parents. Over and over again in various parts of Scripture, we see that discipleship of children is to begin in the home. If you notice, the very first part of this verse says, Hear Israel. This proclamation is to all of the nation, both equipped and unequipped people. To new believers and veterans, this call is to all people to proclaim their love of God to their children and to everyone around them. So again, if you feel inadequate for this task of training 
and discipling your kids, guess what? Welcome to the club. We all feel inadequate at times, agreed? But in our times of feeling inadequate, let me encourage you in two different ways. Number one is this, is God is sovereign. In his providence, God has sovereignly selected you and me to be the primary source of discipleship in the home. Why? I don't know. I don't know. I feel inadequate at times, and I'm sure you do too. Agreed? But he has sovereignly selected us to be the primary source of discipleship. He is the Holy One. He is free from sin. He is righteous. He always does the right thing. And he has chosen us to be disciples in the home. He doesn't make mistakes, and he has chosen you and me. Moreover, since God is powerful and sovereign, he is capable and willing to help us grow as parents. He is equipping us through prayer, through the scriptures, through the spirit, and also equipping us through the counsel of others. Anyone ever get good counsel on parenting? So grateful for that. But again, if you're feeling inadequate, rest in the reality that God is sovereign. He never gets anything wrong, and he's chosen you to be the disciple of your home. Number two, if you're feeling inadequate or thinking you're inadequate, remember this, and this is very important, that our adequacy doesn't come from ourselves, but our adequacy comes from the Lord. In our own strength, we are ill-equipped, me personally, very ill-equipped to do the things that God has called us to do. But our adequacy is not from us. Our adequacy, our ability, comes from the Lord. Interestingly enough, if you go over to a couple chapters to the left, you'll see 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, and this is what the Bible says. Not that we are adequate in ourselves as, so as to consider anything as having come from ourselves, but listen up, but our adequacy is from God. Are we inadequate on our own? Yes, but our adequacy comes from God. It's okay to feel a certain degree of inadequacy at times because it forces us to lean on God to guide us and to mold us. If you remember, the 11 out of the 12 disciples, when God first chose them, they weren't very impressive. But they were selected not based on what, who they were, but what they would become. And I've seen many great parents initially very scared, very feeling very inadequate, but God molded them, shaped them, equipped them to grow, to be great parents. And now those same great parents are what? Counseling others. So if you feel like it's impossible for you to be a good parent, guess what? You're wrong. We serve a sovereign God and our adequacy doesn't come from ourselves, it comes from him. But if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter six, you will notice here in other texts throughout scripture that the emphasis on discipleship is not just bringing children to church. What we saw tonight was great, wasn't it? Lots of kids smiling, lots of parents smiling, lots of Bible verses memorized. That is great. Tonight, God was very much glorified in what we saw tonight. But family discipleship doesn't begin and end at church. Family discipleship is something to be done daily by parents, both parents, 
One parent, if you're a single parent, by foster parents, by grandparents, discipleship biblically begins in the home. And one of the reasons I bring this up is because we have a tendency in American culture to outsource. To what? Outsource. And I outsource stuff. I don't cut my grass. That was hard for me to, a hurdle for me to come over because I felt like I was less masculine if someone else cut my grass, but I'm too busy, someone else cuts my grass. It's okay to outsource. But it's not okay to outsource the things that God has called us to do. And one of the things that God has called us to do as parents is to disciple our kids, not to outsource it to anyone else. And I learned a very interesting statistic in seminary. And this statistic is really based on family discipleship. And the statistic says this. 85% of Christian parents recognize that it is their responsibility to grow and disciple their children. That's a pretty good number, right? 85% say, hey, it's my job. But of that 85%, 65% of them feel like they have met their responsibility of discipling their children by bringing them to church. That their discipleship begins and ends on Sunday. But as we know, discipleship begins when? When you wake up. When you wake up at 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning. Four in the morning. Discipleship begins from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed. It is not something that is just done on Sunday morning. But another thing that I want us to look at, and the main point from Deuteronomy 6 is this. That love for God is essential in family discipleship. Did you hear that? Love for God is essential in family discipleship. As a matter of fact, it's essential for all discipleship. Did you notice in verses 4 and 5 before they talked about sharing the commands of the Lord with your children, what must you do first? Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And if you're ushering or enforcing the law upon your kids and they know you don't love God, what are they going to do? Sense hypocrisy right away. And we don't want that. We want to first love the Lord. And we see this, Jesus reiterates the need for us to love the Lord in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. And to tell you the truth, a whole nother sermon could be preached on what it means to truly love God. So I don't have too, I just, I want to talk about it for a little bit, but I can't spend too much time on it. But John Piper has been really helpful for me on understanding what it means to truly love God and some of his sermons, and I've been reading one of his sermons lately, and he says this about loving God with all your heart. To love God is this, is to prefer God. To prefer God over your wife. To prefer God over your kids. To prefer God means to want to obey God, to prefer his commandments. To love God is to prefer God in spending time with him. To prefer God is to prefer him over sports teams. That's a tough call for many of us. Do you prefer God over a sports team? If not, you got to look at your love for the Lord. And sometimes we do prefer a spouse or a kid over our preference for God. If that has happened in your life, time is short. Confess it and ask God that you would prefer him above all, all other things. Sometimes we, have, we would prefer our job over God. Sometimes we would prefer our fleshly desires over God. But to love God means to prefer him over everything else. 
And I, I bet a lot of you in this room have preferred God and do prefer God. And King David really gives us a great example. King David wasn't perfect. We're not perfect. But you can see in the Psalms through David's heart that there are moments in his life where he deeply preferred God. And we see one of those cases and examples in Psalm 63, verses 1 and 2. And this is really what it looks like to prefer God. Well, this helps us to better understand what it means to prefer God. Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, you are my God. Don't you like that? Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. Look at that word, earnestly, I seek you. Listen to this next part. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Do you get a sense for preferring God in that text? And maybe all of us, myself included, need to grow in preferring our love for God. And if we're going to grow in discipling others, we must continue to grow in our own personal love of God and love of others. Agreed? Agreed. Okay. Let's try that one more time. If we're going to grow in discipling others, we must grow in our love of God. Agreed? Agreed. All right. Thank you very much. All right. But um, some important questions as we contemplate and think about our love for God. I think there's a few surveying questions that would be helpful for all of us to ask ourselves. And one of the questions that we can ask ourselves is this. What do other people say about us? And what I mean by that is, what do they say about our love for God? Would our kids or the people that we're discipling, would they testify that you're crazy in love with Jesus? What would your kids say or the person that you're discipling say about your love for God? Does it make you nervous to ask them (laughs) But we should be leading out in our love for God and to others, to those that we're discipling. Another good question to evaluate as we consider family discipleship is this. Does your family discipleship philosophy emphasize love? Or does your philosophy emphasize consequences? Does our family philosophy on discipleship emphasize love? Or does it emphasize consequences? If we are primarily using God and the law to impose rules and consequences, there is a strong likelihood that you're provoking that child to anger. And what does Ephesians 6.4 tell us? Don't do that, fathers. Do not provoke your children to anger. I'm not saying do not have consequences, but I am saying this. As family disciples, we should lead out in love. One more point I want to just share or tip before we go on is I received this good tip from a really good parent who loves the Lord. And he just gave me some subtle advice the other day. He said this, or I heard him give some subtle advice the other day. He said, be sure to talk about God in the good times, not just in the bad times. There is a tendency at times when our kids mess up, we say things like, God's not happy when you do that. 
Or if you're discipling somebody, you might say, God hates it when you do that. Every time we're bringing up God is when we do something bad. And so if we're always bringing up God when we're doing something bad, what is that person that we're discipling going to think about God? That God is a judge that's always disappointed in me. Granted, God is righteous, agreed? But he's also very gracious, loving, and compassionate. So as we enjoy good times like ice cream, when we enjoy safe rides to school, when we enjoy a funny laugh, how about we say, praise the Lord that he gave you some creativity to be funny. Are we talking about God in the good times and the bad, or are we just talking about him in the bad? I think we can all grow in this. Agreed? And in doing so, we're helping those that we're discipling see all the attributes of God. We don't want our kids just to see his righteousness. We want to see all of God. Agreed? Agreed. Agreed. All right, main point number three up front. Solid. Main point number three on Deuteronomy 6 is this. Is that family discipleship is a daily communication that flows from the heart. Family discipleship is a daily communication that flows from the heart. If you prefer God, guess what will happen? You will talk about God. If you love something, you will talk about it. Let's go back to the text here, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. And this is what the Bible says. And you shall repeat them, again, the Lord's commandments. You shall repeat the Lord's commandments to your sons and speak of them When you sit in your house, when you walk on the road, when you lie down, when you get up, you shall also tie them as a sign to your hand, and they shall be as frontlets on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Is everyone in their Bible? Everyone's in Deuteronomy chapter 6? Do something for me real quick. Every time you see that word when or shall, circle it real quick. And it's okay to write in your Bible you can circle. You're not going to get in trouble if you write in your Bible. Go ahead and circle it. Circle the shalls and the winds. How many shalls and winds do you see? What's the perfect number? Seven. Seven. So over and over again, Deuteronomy is telling us that we should talk to our kids about the Lord all the time. It is a daily intentional conversation that points our minds and our hearts towards God. But these conversations do not have to be serious and theological and talk about the doctrines of grace every time you talk about your five-year-old. You don't have to do that. It can be fun, but it also can point to realities of who Christ is. For example, one of the things that we used to do as when my kids were younger, we probably should still do this. It would probably still be a lot of fun. But they're bigger. I don't know if I could still do this with some of them. Um, is Bible reenactments. Anyone in, ever do Bible, Bible reenactments in the home with your kids? We used to do one when our kids were younger. We used to really love the story of Jesus healing the paralytic. And we used to play this out. Our kids used to have a bunk bed in the house. And we used to put one of our kids up in the bunk bed, wrap him in a blanket. And my son is now 6'3". This is why I can't do this anymore, right? He's, just, he's bigger than me. But he could do it with our other kids. And we used to lift him up, carry him down, drop him. And then my younger son, and this is not biblical, would go sit on him. And when he went and he sat on him, he put his hands on him and said, your sins are forgiven you. Get up and walk. Was that fun? Yes. Was it talking about God at home? Yes. 
Did they learn about God? Yes. What did they learn? That Jesus forgives sins. And if he's forgiven sins, what does that tell us about Jesus? He's God. Is Jesus healing people? Yes, that's supernatural. Only supernatural beings can do supernatural things. So who is Jesus? He is God. Are they learning about God in a fun way? Yes. Are we talking about it all the time? Hopefully. We all can do better. Another time, um, I, could, I remember this past week, um, we live on a lake. And we have a little bench behind our house. And I was sitting with my 6'3" kid, and I can't lift him up and do stuff anymore, but I can still have conversations with him, intentional conversations. And I remember just having a very casual conversation with him. We were sitting on the bench, and I remember us seeing a bird off to the far. And I said, Roman, you see that bird right there? God knows exactly how many feathers are on that bird. And he knows exactly about that undiscovered bug in the middle of nowhere in the Amazon. And he knows exactly about all those particles and galaxies that are billions and billions of light years away. He knows all of those things because he's omnipresent, he's omniscient, he knows everything. But that same God, son, left heaven, came to earth, and died as our substitute. Wow, that's heavy. Again, what are we trying to do? We're trying to talk about the one that we prefer all the time. And I'm not perfect at it, but I need to be encouraged to keep doing it as much as you do. Agreed? So as you know, this task of family discipleship, as fun as it is, it also can be very tiring. Right? And overwhelming. You get tired. We do get overwhelmed. So we do at times need to stay motivated. Agreed? We don't have time not to be motivated. So what I want to do for the rest of our time together is turn to our Bibles, and let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to go through 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and also chapter 5. We're going to look at seven different texts. And as we look at these seven different texts, we're going to see different motivations to hang in there with family discipleship. So as you're turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and chapter 5, we're going to talk about seven motivations for remaining faithful in family discipleship. Again, seven motivations for remaining faithful in family discipleship. And the first one that I want to look at is this, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 18. One of the reasons that we need to stay motivated is because of the eternal perspective. Let's read this text together. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer person is decaying, yet our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. What keeps me motivated, Lord, help me to stay motivated, is an eternal perspective. Look at the very beginning of this text in verse 16. He says this, therefore do not lose heart. What does that mean? It means don't give up. 
Sometimes we get very close to wanting to give up, and Paul's saying, don't do it. And if anyone could be justified in giving up, it would be Paul. Agreed? Flip over real quick a couple of chapters in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're going to see real quick in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that Paul is all in on discipleship. Why? Because he has an eternal perspective. Turn with me real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses 24 through 29. And look at what Paul endured for the sake of others. I know sometimes changing those diapers at 3 in the morning, having that difficult conversation with your teenager, that can be hard. But let's get some perspective here real quick. Look at Paul here. Five times, my goodness, I have received from the Jews 39 lashes. Wow. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times, not once, not twice, but three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I spent adrift at sea. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city. How many times has he said dangers? We're getting there. Dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Did you notice the very ending there? He said, hey, I've physically been through some stuff, but what really keeps me up at night is what? The people that I'm discipling. And I know that many of you in this room who have children, who have people that you're discipling, what keeps you up at night? The soul of your children. And really what Paul is saying here is, I don't care about all the external stuff, the pain that I've incurred on this earth. What I care about is eternal things. I care about souls. And what keeps me up at night is the souls of those I love. So why do I keep pressing on and discipling other people, my kids and others? It's because I have an eternal perspective. Because we have an eternal perspective. And by the grace of God, that ought to keep us in the game. Agreed? All right, let's keep going here. Another motivation. I feel like we could end right there. Who's motivated after that? Just one. I am. But let's keep going. We have six more. Another reason to remain motivated in family discipleship is this. Because we have a deep, a deep desire to please God. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. I have a deep desire to please God. Listen, Christ-centered ambition is a good thing. It's a great thing. God is glorified when we have an ambition and holy resolve to do the things he has called us to do. Things like evangelism, proclaiming the truth, caring for orphans and widows, and discipling. But you have likely noticed that the most worthwhile pursuits in life 
require what? Initiative and resolve. If you want to do good at your job, what do you need? Initiative and resolve. If you want to start exercising, what do you need? A little bit of initiative and a little bit of resolve. Most people start doing the initiative in January when it comes to exercising, but the resolve fades off in February. But if you want to succeed at anything that's worth worthwhile in life, you need initiative and you need resolve. That includes discipling. And we see the true is same for eternal pursuits, that they require initiative and resolve. Listen, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Did that require initiative? He left heaven, came here to die as our substitute. Did that require initiative? Yes. Did it require resolve? When he's on the way to the cross, where is everybody? They're gone. Does he keep going? Yes. Do eternal things that matter require initiative and resolve? Yes, the discipleship require initiative and resolve. But the question is this, how will we respond when our disciples leave? Stay at it. Why? Because we love Christ. Jesus stayed at it. Why? Because he loved the Father. We keep having initiative and resolve because we love the one who died for us. Agreed? Motivated? Motivated. Let's keep going. Another motive for remaining faithful in family discipleship is this. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. Because we know we will be judged. Because we know we'll, we will be judged. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. This is what the Bible says. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive compensation for his deeds done through the body in accordance with what he has done, whether good or bad. Here Paul is giving additional reasons to remain motivated in discipleship. And he's saying this, there will be a day where our eternal investments will be evaluated. And notice he says in this text, we must all, that includes all of us. We must all stand before the bema, the judgment seat to be evaluated by Christ. We all must make a judicial appearance on what we did with our life. But I want to be very, very clear here. The judgment that we're talking about here is not a judgment of salvation. Agreed? Because our salvation has been secured through faith in Christ. And we see that throughout the New Testament. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. For he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. So when we think about the judgment of believers... The goal is not to produce fear, rather the goal is to produce motivation. We will be judged or evaluated and receive compensation for our deeds. But this is important, we will be compensated for the quality of our service. How we spent our energy, how we spent our time, all of this is very motivating. I was actually sharing this with my son on the way to school today. 
I said, you know, Rome, or I don't want to keep saying their names. One of my kids, I said, you know, there'll be a time when we stand before the Lord. And, you know, our salvation is secured in Christ. But he's going to evaluate the things that we invested in, internal um, investment. And we're going to be compensated for those things. And you know what he said? Wow, that's motivating. Yes, it is motivating. So that knowing that we will be compensated for how we invested our time and eternal things ought to motivate us to keep going. But we need to ask ourselves a couple questions. Am I making substantial discipleship investments in my children? Am I making substantial discipleship investments in my children? Am I investing energies into discipling others? Or am I counting on someone else to do it? You know, one of the best interpreters of Scripture is Scripture. And I found that 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15 gives us some more understanding of what the Bible means when it refers to judgment and compensation for the believer. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15 says this. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, hood, hood, wood, hay or straw, each one's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it, is, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work which is, has been built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, a.k.a. he will receive less reward but he himself will be saved. So even if you don't have tons of rewards, you'll still be saved because your salvation is secured in Christ. But we will be evaluated on how we spent our time for the glory of God. Again, another whole sermon can be spent talking about rewards in heaven. But we know that the ultimate reward is Christ and being with him forever. And there will be no jealousy or strife when someone gets a greater reward because we will be one body unaffected by sin and focused on exalting Christ. Another reason to remain motivated in family discipleship is this, our love for Christ. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. I would argue that the wonder of the love of Christ should never, ever get old to us. That his love and what he did for sinners like us should never, ever cease to be amazing, and it should never, ever cease to compel us to serve him. And we see throughout scripture so many great ways where the Lord showed a love that's almost incomprehensible towards sinners like us. And we see one of the verses that I like to recite over and over again when I'm discipling or evangelizing other people is 2 Corinthians 5.21. And if you're not familiar with 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's really close, a couple verses to the right. It's a great verse. You should know it. And this is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become 
the righteousness of God. Yeah, you heard me right. Through faith in Christ, all of my sin, the wrath that I deserved, Christ took it upon himself. And through faith, he gave me the righteousness of Christ. The perfect of life of Christ was credited to me. Is that amazing love? Yes. yes. Would that love compel you to do some remarkable things for his glory? Yes. How about this verse? How about Galatians chapter 2, verse 20? I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Get this. Who loved me and gave himself up for me. And not only does this God love us, but he has an eternal, sustaining love for his children. Romans chapter 8, verse 35 through 39 says this. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation... Will trouble? No. Will persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquered through him who loved us. Now listen up, 38, so good. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Wow, that's a lot of love. And as we think and ponder as we're driving, as we're engaging our kids, it ought to compel us to keep at it in family discipleship. And family and, and discipling others as well. Remember, even when discipleship gets difficult, because it will, and you'll need resolve, and you'll need initiative, but these are opportunities to worship Christ and express our gratitude and love for him. So when it gets tough, we keep going. Why? Because we want to express our love and gratitude for the one who first loved us. Amen? All right, number five. We've got a couple left. Additional reason to remain faithful in family discipleship is this. Because of the lordship of the resurrected Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. For he died for all, and so that all those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. Why do I remain faithful in family discipleship? Because of the lordship of the resurrected Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 tells us we were purchased with a price. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 says we were redeemed by the spotless lamb so that we might live for him. Now somebody, and maybe you know this person, might say this whole concept of living for God sounds like a drag. And if someone is thinking that, unfortunately, it seems as though they would have a very limited understanding of man and who God is. Because if you have a full understanding of who man is, you don't want to live for yourself, but if you have a full understanding of who God is, I can't think of anyone else to live for but him. This is what the life 
of man apart from God looks like. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, witchcraft, hostilities, strife, jealousies. This sounds awful. I don't want to live for myself. Do you? There's more. Outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who participate in such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In light of these verses, I do not want to live for myself. Instead, I want to live for the resurrected Christ, the Holy One, the Sovereign One, the Righteous One, the One who died in my place and took the wrath of God upon Himself so that I can be forgiven. What propels us to continue in family discipleship is the Lordship of the resurrected Christ. Two more left. Another motive to stay consistent And family discipleship is this, because of the promise of a life that can be changed. Some of you are discipling people and you think they will never change. Guess what? God can shave them. God has changed some crazy people in the past and he'll continue to change some crazy people in the future. Let's look at the text here. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one by the flesh, even though we have, known, we have known Christ by the flesh. Yet we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, this person is a new creation. The old things have passed away. They can change through faith in Christ. Behold, new things have come. At conversion, get this, we are no longer recognized or remembered by what we did in the flesh. Do you remember how Paul viewed Christ before his conversion? Wasn't good, was it? This is how Paul viewed Jesus. He scorned Jesus. He saw Christ as a false teacher, as an enemy of Judaism. Paul desired for Jesus' followers to be wiped out, literally. Would have been a bummer if people... uh, wrote off Paul. But through faith, through the power of God, was Paul radically changed? Is his perspective forever different on Christ now through faith? Yes, this is his current view. Christ, where Paul now sees Christ as the prophesied Messiah, as God the incarnate, as our justifier, as our mediator, and as our Lord. So what does this mean for all of us? That there is hope for those that we are ministering to. There is hope for that wayward child that keeps you up at night. There is hope for that hardened spouse that you want to know Christ so badly. There is hope for that person. There is hope for that kid that you haven't talked to in years. God can save them. He's in the business of changing hearts. He's in the business of changing hearts and people like your cynical boss or your in-laws. Most of them are awesome, but some, eh, he can change them too because he has a history of changing people. There is hope through the power of the gospel. So in light of this reality that God can change hearts, our first step 
and family discipleship ought to be evangelism. Not so much with changing their behavior right away, but presenting the glories of Christ and who he is and what he's done for sinners like us. Last one is this. Another motive for remaining faithful in family discipleship is this. Because God's amazing plan to let us be involved. God lets us be involved. Remember, God doesn't need to involve us in saving sinners, but he allows us to participate. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their wrongdoings against them. He has committed to us, to us, to believers, the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. When family discipleship gets challenging, should I stay at it? Yes, because God has saved us for a purpose. God has saved parents, aunts and uncles for a very specific ministry, the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of telling people that they can be reconciled to a holy God. And if you're not familiar with the ministry of reconciliation, it is this. That there was a time where me, Bobby Caliendo, and you, fill in your name, was hostile towards God. An enemy of God. You were not friends. You were in totally different universes. But there was a time that God awoke in your dead heart and gave you a new heart and gave you faith, led you to repentance so that you have faith in his son and through faith in his son, you are now friends with the living God. You are reconciled through the work of Christ. That is the ministry of reconciliation. And what has God charged parents and all believers with? To tell other people to be reconciled to God. We all have been saved for a purpose. And that purpose is to share the ministry of reconciliation with others. So when it's difficult with my kids or with my neighbors, do I stay at it? Yes, because my God has called me to do it. He has called me to fulfill the Great Commission, and he has called me to participate in the ministry of reconciliation. But notice this. In verse 20, Paul says we are ambassadors for Christ. And what is an ambassador? An ambassador is a messenger and a representative of the one who sent him. We are messengers and representatives of the living God. That means we represent God before our kids, before our coworkers, before our friends, before our relatives, everywhere we go, since we're identified with Christ, we represent him. We represent him in every circumstance, both good and bad. And what is the work of an ambassador? Verse 20, this is the work of an ambassador. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. 
Ambassadors beg people to come to Christ with gracious humility. So hopefully parents, non-parents, hopefully tonight God's word has informed you a little bit on discipleship. That if we prefer Christ, we will tell people about Christ everywhere we go. And hopefully by looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and chapter 5, you feel motivated to continue and discipling others because you love our worthy Savior. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you've entrusted us with children and that you've entrusted us with influence. And in that, Lord, we pray that we would be good stewards of our time, that we would invest in eternal things. Lord, that our love for you would compel us to do difficult things that your love would uh, drive us to show initiative and resolve in loving those who are sometimes unlovable. But we do this, Lord, because we're compelled to do so by your love towards us. And I pray as we leave this place, Lord, that we would be encouraged and motivated, even when we're tired, even when we're run down, to continue sharing the love of Christ with others. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.